you should know. This episode contains references to suicide and suicidal ideation, so please bear that in mind before you listen. We're losing two construction workers every working day to suicide, and that's just knocked the industry into action to do something about it. People can find us and can tell us what they think their problems are, what they might need a therapist for. Um, They define uh, what their needs are, they define what their problems are, and we start wherever the client is most worried. Our deaths by suicide aren't coming down the same rate because there's too many poor people. They don't have enough money, they can't feed themselves, they don't have any hope because they don't know what's coming down the road. I'm Summer Jamal, a reporter for Greater Govanhill magazine. And I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor of The Ferret. And over these three episodes, we're asking you to come on a journey with us as we investigate the health gap. That's the stark difference between the health and well-being of people depending on whether you live in Scotland's most or least deprived communities. As we've already discussed, the difference in health depending on your postcode are pretty dramatic. So far we've looked at issues like low birth weight and child obesity, which impact more on children and infants from the most deprived neighbourhoods. And we've looked at drug deaths. You're 16 times more likely to die of a drug overdose if you live in one of Scotland's least affluent areas. For this episode, we want to look at the third issue highlighted by the Health Foundation report, Leave No One Behind. That's the health and well-being of young and middle-aged men. Suicide, alcohol and drugs are leading causes of death for men aged 15 to 44 years old. And once again, you're much more likely to die of one of these issues if you're from one of the most deprived areas in Scotland. Often these issues overlap. They're also entangled together with issues like leaving education at a younger age, reduced earning potential and higher unemployment rates. That's something we've already looked at as part of our year-long project called Mind the Health Gap. But in this podcast, we're not just focusing on the problem. We're also investigating the solutions that could help us fix it. Things that could make the health gap in Scotland into something that future generations mind as an issue from way back when. And we're going to start with a local story again, where James, a joiner and labourer from Glasgow, told us about his own struggles with his mental health. I've always been a joiner, and then I became a labourer. Last year, I lost my dad. Before that, I was obviously suffering through a wee bit of mental health. Before that, I lost a good friend of mine. But we were always together, man. And I never never knew that, growing up, I never knew he was going through the mental health because he never spoke. But I always did ask him, are you all right? But sometimes for men, and I know this is going to sound silly, but for men, men don't usually not talk about it. Like somebody could say to me, are you all right, James? Ah, of course I'm all right, it was silly. You know what I mean? But a woman, women could talk to women, couldn't they? cups of teas and sit down and blah blah. I know that I'm judging women, no no that's certainly not what I'm saying but men it's harder, it's harder to speak. Yeah, I got a phone call at 7 in the morning, so I went to work to get fun with a guy who was walking his dog and he was I was, he was gone like, um, and we always said that, buddies for life. So that broke my heart and then as I said the 2nd and the 3rd December I lost my father. Father was my big part of my life, as we'd done everything together, fishing, to go on walks, to climbing Bape Nevis, to Clinton, didn't it? Anything not I'm talking about. I'm not going to lie, eh, between the 10th, no sorry, I but the 10th or the 12th, eh, I just, just had enough, I think my mental health, but my mental health was deteriorating before that, and then I just had enough. 
that's what mental health does. Is like mental health is the fact that you're looking yourself in the house, you're not talking to anybody, you're switching your phone off, you're up and down with a yo-yo, your anxiety is top of the roof, you don't know where you're coming or going. You try and phone the doctors, or you get his eye, I'll get you an appointment, blah blah blah. And then when you do get seen, all you're getting is leaflets. How do I cope with my mental health? I'm feeling a bit low, I'm not gonna lie. I usually I usually take myself a walk or I don't know, I usually I'll go and talk to somebody now, which I never really done, right? So I've I talked to, I've got a good friend that I talk to, I'll go on the phone and say, look, I'm having a bad day, right? What's going on? Tell me what's going on, right? Come on, fact, you know what? Drive over and meet me, or I'll come and get you the new. And brand new, Thomas's name is Brand Spanky, comes over, and we'll go around the motor and he'll say, right, come on, tell me what's going on. Spill your guts, and then obviously, once when, when you get it all out, you feel. Oh. Mental health will not just go away. It's not just going to go away, it'll just like bump like a click off. It's, it, it's no. I want to be a worker, I'm going to hopefully be a mental health worker. I'm hoping die. That's my achievement in life. That's what's going to happen anyway. I'm going to be that. I'm going to be the good guy. That's what I'm going to be. What's interesting is that certain sections of society here are more at risk. One of those is the construction industry, where suicides have been rising for several years. I spoke to Bill Hill, chief executive of the Lighthouse Charity, which supports those in the construction industry who are suicidal or struggling with their mental health and well-being about what's behind that and how it can be addressed. There, there are several factors uh, that make up that uh, disproportionate representation of suicides within the industry. Uh, first of all, there's roughly about, in the UK and Ireland, around about 3.1 million people working in construction. 87% of those are men. If you look at the national statistics, around about 6,000 suicides every year, 5,000 are men were disproportionately represented by men in the industry, which immediately means that there's going to be a higher instance of suicide. So, I mean, it's a very high reward industry, but it's a high risk industry. Every year, there are around about maybe 40 fatal accidents on site um, in the UK and Ireland, which is higher than any other industry. There's around about 2,000 accidents that cause such an injury to an individual that they can't actually go back to work to do the job that they used to do. It's one of the highest instances of occupational cancer of any other industry as well, mainly due to some of the historic things with asbestos, but now more recently with silicon dust. 53% of the population within construction are either um, agency workers, self-employed, or in zero-hour contracts. So their surety of income is irregular. That can be very, very uh, tricky to manage. And when the industry can lift and lay people off at short notice, it's very difficult to feel comfortable with your family. You're, you're, you're the breadwinner for the family to bring that that income in. A lot of people are working away from home for large sections of, of time, especially on the bigger contracts. And that can be a very lonely place. They often stay in suboptimal accommodation. Uh, they don't eat properly. They sometimes drink too much. Sometimes they see other substances that they use as well. They come home from being away, away from a project. Their families expect the homecoming with this big paycheck, and you can find a lot of it has been frittered away on other activities, perhaps gambling or something like that as well. With the risk profile of this industry, it has got a huge intolerance to anybody coming on site who've got drugs or alcohol in, in their bloodstream. So uh, all the big sites, will do drug testing, random. And, and if they catch anybody 
who is under the influence of alcohol or drugs, they immediately get marched off site. A lot of them are self-employed, so therefore this is the only way they're going to get money uh, to come into their household. But they get marched off site because they're on big biometric systems. They're not only taken off that site, but they will not be allowed onto any other site belonging to that company, which causes a huge problem. They feel like, I say, I can't get a job anywhere. I'm now unemployable. And that's going to add hugely to their anxiety and stress and maybe drive them towards having some suicidal ideation. If it's a good employer, you'd be put onto some program to help you with your problem and the problem could well be resolved. But if you're self-employed and this happens to you, you've been the thing that really knocked the industry for six and the thing that we've been working on since around about 2017, the industry recorded the fact that we're losing two construction workers every working day to suicide. And that has just knocked the industry into action to do something about it. The very first thing we did was set up a 24-7 helpline just for the industry uh, to look after the emotional support, the physical support, and financial support of the individual as well. So it was to provide a holistic service. It's like a one-call-does-it-all sort of type place where somebody can go. So we added a a text bank counselling service to that again on a 24-7 basis. Then we've launched a new portal um, called makeinvisible.info where anybody can access a portal to learn about things, looking at coping strategies. Then we launched a a wellbeing academy so we could then when people start getting interested in their uh, own wellbeing and trying to make themselves more resilient, we've got a whole host of uh, free courses that people can access mainly online so they can do it in their own time but we also have got master classes where they can have a tutor-led instruction as well uh, we've got meditation for construction workers and on top of that then what we're really proud of we built a nationwide network of beacons what they are is, is drop-in centers where a local volunteer group will run maybe a session once a week um, at a, a, a local establishment of some sorts um, in a pub or it might be a community hall or even a church. They welcome MD who walks through the doors. What they all have in common is that they're led by somebody who has got some experience of how to identify issues and help signpost those individuals to get the right level of support. Now, Make It Visible on site is that we've taken a couple of tradesmen um, who have had mental health problems themselves who are mental health first aiders. And what we've done is put them in a van and got them out to go on site. Uh, the brilliant thing about that is uh, you go on site and they do a stand down day. And what you do is you actually reach the people we are trying to reach, which are very hard to reach through any other program are the boots on the ground. And they basically get people to talk about the emotional problems or well-being problems that they're having. And because they are tradesmen themselves, there's a very strong empathy. And what actually happens then is the barriers break down, the discussion starts, and it opens up the conversation. And then what they do is say, look, if any of you guys are struggling, help is here. And they give out the helpline cards to those people saying, look, you or your family can make these calls to this charity and get the support that you need. People were coming to talk to those guys or make visible ambassadors with suicidal ideation and telling them that this is the end of the road for them. And we've got them into counselling within 24 hours, straight off the back of that. Over the years, we started off, we were supporting around about 350 families a year. We're now supporting 400 a month. If we look at what we've done just this year alone, 
we've made what we call 87 critical interventions already this year. So not only is this a very successful program, but I can hand on heart say that this program is saving lives. That was Bill Hill of the Lighthouse Charity. He mentioned the way mental health and substance use interact with each other. Researchers have found these issues are interconnected. I visited the Harm Reduction Therapy Centre in San Francisco and found out more about how they work with people struggling with their mental health but also using substances and who are often living on the streets. I'm here in San Francisco's downtown area of south of Market, or Soma, on my way to visit a therapy service with a difference. Unlike most, the Harm Reduction Therapy Centre doesn't force people to choose whether they need help with their mental health or their drug and alcohol use. This service does both at the same time. It's a catch-22 situation I've reported on back in Scotland for a long time. And it's also an issue that's more than familiar to the team at the Harm Reduction Therapy Centre. I'm here with Anna Berg, the Centre's Director of Programmes, who is taking me to visit their main drop-in space on Merlin Street. Are you relaxing, chillaxing, or are you the welcoming committee? Inside, it's warm, full of light, and carefully designed by former architect-turned-programme assistant James Pollitt. In this space, there are couches, art materials, a guitar and other instruments. Guests can make themselves a cup of tea or coffee in the kitchen area, and there's always food on offer. Harm reduction supplies are available to ensure substance users are able to do so safely. The therapy rooms which lead off the main space are all named after legendary harm reductionists from across the US and beyond. But this is not just a building-based service. Peter Jay, a regular at this drop-in, tells me that he first got involved in its street service. There's a pop-up event happening this afternoon and he tells me what it's all about. Wednesday in the afternoons, 2.30 to 5, people gather because the Harm Reduction Therapy Centre comes and supports the making of a community space on the street for people to reduce their harm and enhance their benefit in their web of relationship of uh poverty and resources in mental health and substance use and abuse and done with persistently non-judgmental offerings of care and sharing that has a lot of respect and integrity for meeting people where they are and allowing them to decide for themselves. Peter Jay is politically active. He loves tea and the culture around tea ceremonies and he's interested in people and sharing his life and views of the world with them. He's also a hoarder, he explains, unable to get rid of the things he doesn't need in his life. He's here with two plastic bags which are stuffed full. I don't have to hide or pretend that I'm not a person with depression. I'm not a person that deals with uh, what's called hoarding behaviors. I think the thing that I really get benefit from is the way that I'm able to be more authentically who I am and offer more fully out of what I love and I care about, and people respond to that. The centre's founders and staff believe building trust starts with showing up for their community where they are. Often that's on the street. So we head to their Wednesday drop-in, which is walking distance from the centre. 
we are walking down our street, our little alley tucked away spot where we were finally able to like realize a lifelong agency dream and open our own center here for folks who are actively using drugs and who are having to deal with the trauma of the street. Wind might be a lot. Um, windy in San Francisco, <laughs> as always. On their alley, many homeless people are camped out in tents and improvised shelters. Although there's construction going on across this neighbourhood, you'll probably hear that in the background, most of this new housing won't benefit those who need it most. As of August 2022, according to government statistics, almost half of the city's 19,000 homeless people either had a substance use or serious mental health disorder. Of those, 35% had both. These, says Anna, are their people and they need to be close by. But they certainly don't just limit themselves to one street. We're going to walk now to one of our sites, which we've been operating, I think, gosh, almost five years now. Same location. We bring our van, we bring food, we bring good company, we bring clinicians, therapists who do offer integrated mental health and um, substance use treatment. And our pop-up sites have been, I think, really successful. <laughs> and we have folks who come who come every time this has become a part of their week. They come to seek out a particular clinician. They'll say, I'd like some time with Irina. I'd like some time with Marsha. Right? And then we have folks who are like, I would just like some lemonade. This street setting works particularly well for those who are most traumatised, according to Anna, and who might otherwise not be able to engage with therapy. When people are standing side by side, it feels a little less intense, and less intimidating, less um, focused on me. I feel like I have space to move, which if I've had a traumatic experience in a closed space, I need to feel like I have that option. We turn down a side street alongside a park where the harm reduction van has pulled up and food is already being served. Um, we have a hard time finding parking, so food van is down there. <laughs> We'd love to take over the whole block and do a whole thing, but politics, traffic, permits. So we're on the side. <laughs> um, but yeah, folks come and you can see one of our therapists is sitting on the picnic bench right now, Irina. She's got a black mask on having a conversation. Oh gosh, food. Where is Winnie? She should be around. The van is here and food is out because I see people eating. Let's come down this way and see. You want to walk with us? Let's see if it's here. I'm talking to this lady, but I'll show you at the same time. <laughs> so what we have today is we have a massage therapist who is offering touch therapy. That's Andy over there uh, and has somebody on the massage chair right now. We have music because sound, music, dance community building, just in a different kind of sensory experience is a nice option for folks. Um, the current uh, person doing music right now is one of our longtime clients here of this pop-up. He comes almost every week, likes to bring a sound system, likes to kind of be the DJ. Um, we also have talk therapists. So again, you can see one of our therapists engaged in a session uh, at the, the picnic table with someone. Um, she has an emotional support animal that she brings with her on Wednesdays, and it has been just a wonderful engagement tool for a lot of folks. This approach of finding unthreatening and appealing ways of forging connection with people is one of the cornerstone principles of the Harm Reduction Therapy Centre, according to co-founders Pat Denning and Jeannie Little, who set it up in 2000. Frustrated with what they considered inhumane treatment services that they witnessed, failing the marginalised communities they worked with, 
they decided to do something different, even if that meant making up a new methodology along the way. I'm Pat Denning, and I'm a psychologist and a psychopharmacologist. I'm one of the founders of the Harm Reduction Therapy Center and have been working to develop a treatment model based on harm reduction for 30 years now, probably. The treatment systems were then and are still pretty much divided. What they used to say in treatment, you can either be crazy or an addict, but you can't be both. <laughs> Drug problems are a mental health problem that just has a behavioral component. But all mental health problems have a behavioral component, so it's a very false distinction. For Jeannie, the fundamental thing is to give people autonomy over the type of help they might need. People can find us and can tell us what they think their problems are, what they might need a therapist for. Um, they define uh, what their needs are, they define what their problems are, and we start wherever the client is most worried. They tell their story and they decide what they need. This is a service that has a principle of radical inclusion. That means it works with drug users even when their using may be turned by others as chaotic, or where people's behaviours may have seen them excluded from other services. They aim to create a space that is fun, warm and welcoming, and something people want to be part of. So we make sure that uh, people's entry into the place is as welcoming as possible. Well, if there's a front desk person that they are specifically trained to um, say hello, to offer services, to, um, to accept anybody who walks in the door, uh, at, to the furniture. You know, that the furniture needs to be comfortable, that the, the place has to have, you know, interesting painting and colors, uh, food available. Um, so that, that people walk in and feel like the environment is going to take care of them and, and begin to trust the environment as well as us. And those same principles apply to the street site today. Anna says this feeling of warmth and inclusion is very intentional. This works really well for us because we're in a park. They're having a children's birthday party. <laughs> we're talking and creating community and everybody, it's okay. Everybody's got space. Everybody can have room, right? We've got a children's bouncy castle. We've got a little, little R&B, little Motown tunes, right? And um, again, massage therapy, everybody in the neighborhood is welcome. And uh, we like to model that in hopes that our, our neighbors and our city can remember that everybody matters. Everybody's welcome. Everybody has a part. Everybody's important, and um, we will certainly do that here. Um, we'd like to think that that spills out other places. <laughs> no, 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 she just got here. It can't have happened yet. It can't. You can find out more about San Francisco's Harm Reduction Therapy Centre in the show notes. So how else can we respond to the challenges men face with their mental health? I was joined by Linda Burney of Mikey's Line, which offers suicide prevention and a helpline across the Highlands, by Graham Callender of We Are With You, a charity working with people struggling with their mental health, alcohol or substance use, and therapist Sean McCann, who also works for Strathclyde University. 
They told me more about what their organisations are doing. So, Linda, tell me a little bit about Mikey's Line and the work that you do there. Mikey's Line is a mental health charity and a suicide prevention charity. It was set up uh, around seven years ago, born out of tragedy after the deaths of two young men in their 20s within 48 hours of each other. And it was identified by one of the young men's uncle, his uncle Ron, that young men were... And, and others were feeling that there was nowhere to turn. So from that, Mikey's line was set up um, initially with a, with a mobile phone. And I remember getting an email around saying he wants to ship in a fiver to, be, to buy a phone so that we can be there for people. And from there, it's grown to have additional ways that people can contact, you know, through text and, and other ways, including face to face. People of all ages and all genders, primarily suicide prevention and a mental health charity. So we've been hearing quite a lot in the course of the different segments here about the stigma that's facing men in asking for help with their mental health. Do you want to say a little bit about your experience of that and how you address that stigma? Certainly, I was speaking to a group of young men uh, this morning, in fact, and it, you know, I was asking them about that and they said that I think sometimes men, you know, this they see it as, a, as a, some sort of weakness that they need to ask for help, or or even they don't even have the skills perhaps to to ask for help. You know, if we think about how maybe young boys are, you know, come up through the education system, you know, at what point do we teach them the skills of communication to ask for help? And, and I think you know the, the other thing that kind of people mentioned was the kind of persona of needing to be a strong man and be a provider and not have any issues and not have any problems and be there to be competent and, and confident and asking for help doesn't sit along with that very readily. And in terms of Mikey's line, how do you make sure that offer of help is as readily available as possible? From the outset, Mikey's line was set up through a text-based service. So somebody can type what they like. If they're not happy with it, they can delete it, retype it. And it can start with being as simple as hello. And the person at the end of the line with Mikey's line will respond to that and start the conversation. And then it kind of gets going from there. So making it as easy as possible. There's five different ways of, of text methods that people can use. So whatever system somebody's comfortable with, you know, somebody's comfortable with SMS or WhatsApp or Messenger. But, you know, all these options are there. And if somebody's would rather really speak to somebody, they can book a telephone appointment or a Zoom appointment or they can be seen face to face. You know, we're covering the Highlands and into Murray, which is a, a huge area, you know, increasingly having outreach, call them hives where we can see people. So we, you know, we developed a place to be seen in Inverness, but also in Allness, Nairn, and we're working in another, other areas at the moment. Also reaching out much more into, so we work in schools, in particular in terms of this boys from a, a young age. So we do go into primary schools to teach skills, teach awareness and teach knowledge right through the secondary schools, going to workplaces, you know, with different sectors, including those that are very male dominated. So it's a way to get information into the workplace directly to people who have a need who maybe wouldn't get the messages otherwise. So I think that's really important to go to where people are and we're out in the community as well, go to community events. Brilliant. Thank you, Linda. Graham, this would be a good time to ask you about how you see all these factors as kind of coming together and putting people that you see maybe more at risk? Um, the vast majority of people that reach out to our services, stigma plays a huge part in terms of why people are struggling to come forward to ask for help through their primary care or GP services. But also I think that when you look at alcohol and drug-related death statistics, deprivation features massively within those figures. You know, like five, ten times more likely to die of an alcohol and drug-related harm than less deprived areas, for example. 
also as well, I think, for the people that we see, trauma is probably number one thing that is people would identify it as the reason that someone is using drugs and alcohol as a way of coping and, and low level when something's diagnosed mental health conditions are also a huge factor within there as well. Even though we're only specifically there to deal with and help someone achieve recovery, actually in reality what we are dealing with is trying to understand someone's mental health condition and also um, providing access to more specialised trauma support um, as and when required. So a very, very complicated picture. And a lot of people find it complicated as well to access help when they are struggling between those two different services, which very often try and separate out struggles with mental health and trauma from substance use and problems. How does We Are With You try to marry those two up and offer something that can meet people where they're at? Absolutely. Well, I think in in terms of how we deliver our support right across Scotland, we've got a variety of ways that people can access the, the, the support that we offer. So not dissimilar to some other people, we offer online support for people to almost anonymously reach out and start asking for help in a, in a, in a way that sort of protects their anonymity as well. But I think when it comes to mental health is that we recognise that mental health is very closely aligned and is sometimes the cause or the lead, you know, reason for someone developing an addiction. So our role is to advocate and support people to ensure that they get the right type of help that they can. So if it is a counsellor or if it is a, a more acute mental health condition that someone has that support. I think also as well that a lot of the interventions that are trained staff utilise are based on cognitive behavioural approaches and motivational interviewing. So we are using these approaches that counsellors might adopt as well. So we're not just looking at the addiction or the drug of choice, we're actually understanding what's led that person to that place where they might be struggling. Because really, the drug or the, you know, coming off of a substance or detoxing from alcohol, that sometimes is the easy part. The harder part is what comes next and in, in dealing with what the previous trauma has been. So that's why a lot of our services and staff are trained in that way, so that we can adapt um, and support someone in a holistic manner. Brilliant. And Sean, maybe in some of your past work, that's that's something that you've seen as well. What did you find was most effective in making sure that people didn't fall down that, that gap that is too often exists? Probably I worked in services that, that, that delivered similar interventions to Graham. Uh, the research has, has moved on in the past sort of five, six years in terms of, if we think about suicidality and suicidal ideation, in services that I've worked in the past, we used to risk assess, you know, there was various risk assessment tools. But all the most recent research that shows is that risk assessment isn't good at identifying who's going to make the move from thinking about suicide to taking action to end their, their life by lethal means. Nowadays in the university, we use like, specific interventions aimed at treating suicidality as a discrete presentation. So in the past, like comorbidity, people would say that the person's high risk of suicidal ideation, struggling with a recovery or depressed or like not quite in recovery yet, so going through harm reduction you would probably adopt a holistic approach and risk would be uh, assessed by everybody using some kind of risk protocol. Nobody was actually treating the suicidality. So in terms of working with people now, if someone mentions that they are thinking about uh, suicide, even sort of things such as, oh, I just want to wake up and I'm not here, we actually use protocols to sort of like, assess that as an ongoing thing to see if there's changes in that. And if people are being affected by suicidality as a discrete um, presentation because it can be something in and of itself that people begin to think more of their thoughts evolve 
in the past, people used to see suicide as something that came along with depression. Some depressed people may complete suicide, but lots of people who have suicidal ideation would not meet the criteria for depression. If somebody had asked them questions about the suicidal ideation and treated the suicidal ideation as a discrete presentation, they might not have harmed themselves. So we use a protocol called CAMS, Clinical Assessment for measuring suicide. If we're worried about someone because of suicidality, we'll just treat the suicide as a presentation the same way a CBT therapist would treat somebody with panic disorder. So do you think that actually we we need to understand a lot more about suicide and what you know what leads to that? We we often just steer away from the conversation um in the public discourse. Do you think if we better understood that we would be able, better able to, to find responses that really work. In Glasgow, pioneered work in this. Um, Rory O'Connor at Glasgow University, he's one of the professors there, runs an organisation called Suicide Research. And he, he's released paper after paper in the last five years. They've interviewed thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in hospital who made an attempt to end their life through lethal means. And they've been able to come up with a model that can kind of explain how people go from thinking about suicide to taking action to end their life. The research has been done, but there seems to be a willful ignorance from people that might have to do something about it. It's not something the British government, Scottish government, um, NHS has taken up because it would cost money to start using this. It would be another discrete intervention people would have to be referred to. It would involve training everybody in third-party organisations to use the clinical assessment protocols that's been designed to treat people in this way. It isn't something that only therapists can do. There's protocols been designed so that anybody can be trained to use it. But we're still stuck on risk assessment, and risk assessments don't work. You know, we've been talking about trying to look at what the responses are and, and, and what's working. You know, we've heard from helpline approaches like the construction worker one or Mikey's line, programs that are going out to workplaces using peer supports as a way of really engaging with people. You know, when I went to San Francisco, we're hearing about people going right onto the street and just really meeting people where they are. And I suppose that has been the kind of the consistent message I've been hearing meeting people where they are and making sure that you're really available is the thing that works. Have you got any final points about about the things that work and how we can scale those up so that Scotland can try and tackle this issue better? Linda, are there any similar kind of things that, that we just need to get as fundamentals? You know, one of the key things we try to get across on Mikey's line is you're not alone. There are people there who are willing to help. Uh, you know, Mikey's line runs in a peer support system, so it's people from communities who are there to help other people from their own communities. So that kind of grassroots approach, I think, can work very well. Brilliant. Thank you, Linda. Graeme, any final points from you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, and when it comes to a lot of this, is that we need all the approaches available. So as an organisation, we can help up to 12,000 people a month through our web chat and in-person services and GP surgeries, etc. The biggest challenge we have is how people get into the service. And we know that that's where the harm is most likely to happen, is people who are not plugged in or engaged. So for me, it's about how do we get that assertive approach being in communities. And it is using lived experience and peers. But I think fundamentally what needs to happen, it has to be resourced adequately. I think up to this point, sometimes we give services to people rather than adapting our services to what someone needs. And I think that there's, there's definitely more to be done there. But all of that takes resource and commitment. 
from national and local government. And I think that that's the bit that needs to be sustained. And Sean? Out of every 100,000 in Europe, it's, I think over the last 40, four years that was captured, like 2017 to 2001, I think it was like roughly six or seven people per 100,000. In the poorest areas of Scotland, that was 23 or 24 people per 100,000. For all that we can talk about what, what helps, like I, I, I think I said earlier the clinical assessment and measurement of suicidality, it's called the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality. It's an excellent protocol for using to, to keep people alive and keep people out of hospital. It works. It's based on the most up-to-date research. But if we really want people to stop killing themselves, then we need to give poor people more money. It's that simple. The deaths by suicide in Scotland have reduced at a lower rate than England and Wales. Poverty rates over the last 10 years have went up. Child poverty rates have went up. So our deaths by suicide aren't coming down at the same rate because there's too many poor people. They don't have enough money. They can't feed themselves. They don't have any hope because they don't know what's coming down the road. I'm well aware as a therapist the limitations of what I can do. And if we see this as a mental health issue, then we're miles off it. There's too many poor people. There's a lot of food for thought there, especially about the link between the health gap and economic inequality. So where do we go from here? In these three episodes, we've heard from so many interesting people about interventions that are really having an impact. You can read more of our work on this topic at theferret.scot or greatergovernhill.com. And there'll be so much more out there that we've not covered. So we'd love for you to get in touch and tell us what else we should look at. You can also contact us on social media, either Instagram at greatergovernhill or theferret.scot or on Twitter at govanhill underscore mag or ferretscot. And get contact details or info on how to become a member on our websites. Support our work and help us do more of it. Remember, you can listen to all three episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed them, please share them widely. And don't forget to give us a review. It really does help.